Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. So today I am joined by a pastor who is also a professor and an author. His name is David Ritchie, and he lives and serves in Amarillo, Texas. David's name and work caught my eye for a couple reasons. For one, his church and my church are both in the Acts 29 network, but also, and more importantly for this conversation, I noticed David's new book published just a couple months ago entitled, Why Do the Nations Rage? The Demonic Origin of Christian Nationalism. The title really piqued my interest. I have been wanting to discuss Christian nationalism on all things ever since the January 6th, 2021 insurrection at the United States Capitol, but I have felt woefully ill-equipped to do so. So I wanted to bring somebody on the podcast who has really given this a ton of thought and prayer and consideration and even a Christian lens. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Pastor Richie. I'm hoping he will educate me and all of you on this still yet timely topic of Christian nationalism. So welcome to All Things, David. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me, Jen. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your own background, your upbringing in Texas, and the many roles that you have in your current community, and how you came to write a book about Christian nationalism. Absolutely. Yeah. My roots go about as deep as they can in the West Texas wilderness. I've, I've been here all of my life. I was born and raised in Amarillo. I'm on one side of my family, um, um, five generations deep, which is about as long as permanent settlements have been in this location. And I came to faith in Amarillo. Um, I, I essentially was educated at West Texas A&M, which is in a community 10 miles south of Amarillo in a, a little town called Canyon. And uh, now I, I serve as the lead pastor of Redeemer Christian Church, which is essentially a replanted church in Amarillo. It has uh, deep roots in the city as well. And um, I'm married to Kate. Uh, we have three little boys, and um, it's a joy to do ministry um, together. Um, I'm also a instructor of religion at West Texas A&M University, my old alma mater. And um, I do a lot of different things in the community. One of the great things about um, being in a place where you're so deeply rooted is you have this lifetime uh, of networked relationships. And so that's given me a lot of opportunity to be uh, deeply involved in, in the community life of Amarillo, Texas. And so I'm on a part of a, a lot of different nonprofit boards as well as we, we seek as a church to really be able to make a difference, um, to be able to be mm -hmm. a, not just a visible presence, but a, a felt tangible presence in our city of loving our city, of serving our city, of hopefully showing the, the beauty of the gospel to our city. Mm, that's awesome. I appreciate your work and that you are not sort of separate from your community, but deeply entrenched in your community. That is a gift. So where did this idea for Christian nationalism, writing this book come from? What, where did it all begin, David? Well, like many things um, that are, are, we're presently talking about, it began in the pandemic. I, I, was, I was finishing up um, some coursework at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. And as one of my readings, I, I read this book that I'd heard about for a long time, but I'd never had the opportunity to sit down and read it. But it was uh, Dre Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. And the whole idea behind this book of Christianity and Liberalism is that Machen was trying to form this theological critique of theological liberalism, which was at the time um, considered to be like maybe one potential theological outlook that was within Christianity. And, and he began to detect and, and believe that, you know, really theological liberalism is not one version of Christianity or one expression of Christianity. It really is 
an altogether different religion. And we need mm-hmm. to start understanding it as such. And he began to kind of show how theological liberalism will have certain doctrines that use the same language as Christian systematics would, but with entirely different meanings. Mm-hmm. And I began to ask this question of, okay, you know, this was written a hundred years ago. Um, I, I really wonder what that a- analogy would be. Uh, is there an ideology? Is there a, a belief system that closely mirrors Christianity, but is not Christianity and might be leading people that I know and love astray. And as soon as I formulated that question in my mind, the immediate answer was nationalism. Mm -hmm. And of course, as we were diving into the pandemic, um, it was just this huge cultural inflection point, right? There were, um, you know, you have all these different health protocols and limitations. Um, uh, the summer of 2020 um, just sparked so much um, conversation about race, um, a, a lot of uh, civic unrest related to the je- death of George Floyd, um, going not just into a highly polarized election that was expected, but then a disputed election um, that was um, even more polarizing, even more divisive, even more leading just everybody into a constant state of anger and anxiety. And, and as that was coming together, I had the opportunity to write really a, a thesis um, for the, the end of my master's project. And, and I just couldn't get this idea out of my mind um, that nationalism, as we, we hear about it often discussed, is usually coming from a sociological or a historical angle. Some political scientists will write about nationalism, but it's very rarely understood and very rarely interpreted through a religious angle. And so what I, I really felt called to do and that I wanted to do for myself and that anyone else that would benefit from it is I wanted to attempt to understand nationalism in distinctly biblical and theological categories. And, mm-hmm. and so what began essentially as a thesis eventually became this book. And, and the reason it became this book is I, I finished my last two chapters and sent them in an email to my advisor, a man named uh, Dr. Paul Jun, who is a pastor and a professor uh, who lives in uh, Washington, D.C. And the day that I sent that final email to him of, of my final chapters was January 6th, 2021. <laughs> that is and, wild. And it, it was just this crazy providential um, kind of collision of just seeing how relevant this was. He, he immediately said, let's get through the defense, but I really want to encourage you to start putting together a book proposal because I think this is so timely and I think this is something that that needs to get out there. And, and so mm-hmm. um, it didn't start out as a book, actually. It started out as a thesis, but it just became so increasingly relevant and timely that it transferred sure. into a publishable book. Yeah. Okay. So let's zoom way out and let's get a definition for Christian nationalism. I mean, one reason I've been so hesitant to record my own thoughts on Christian nationalism is that it turns out it's hard to define it, that depending on who you are, sociologist, historian, commentator, theologian like yourself, the definitions vary widely. And so conversations can be had where we're not even really talking about the same thing when we think we are. So how do you frame Christian nationalism? What's your definition? I would even uh, take one further step back and say, what is nationalism? Okay, right? good. Because, so let's start uh, there. E- even, even before you can get to the Christian nationalism part. And so nationalism does have a spectrum of meaning. And the proponents of nationalism would say, this is just this principled standpoint where we believe that nations should be able to put themselves first, um, to be able to um, 
pursue their own interests without any type of foreign influence or limitation. And so a lot of times the proponents of nationalism see it as something that stands against maybe foreign imperialism, um, people that are trying to basically make them a part of an empire, um, or a, an impulse that is saying, we want to resist globalism and kind of like the, the self-defeating um, compromises that we make whenever we have to um, uh, be influenced by globalist forces. But nationalism in, in many senses also has an inherently critical definition, and this is something that's all over scholarly literature, is seeing that nationalism is essentially what happens whenever the nation becomes so crucial. And maybe a better way to say it is not just the nation, but a particular vision of the nation becomes the mm. thing that is of absolute paramount importance. Um, and it tends to exclude and to see as an implacable enemy anything that is outside of that. And so one distinction that is, is very common and I think is very helpful is actually seeing nationalism as something that is distinct from patriotism. Yeah, that's helpful. And so patriotism, um, and again, this distinction goes back to George Orwell. He, he wrote a book called uh, Notes on Nationalism um, where he kind of began to explore this, um, this dichotomy and many other people have picked it up since then. Um, I understand patriotism kind of more in a religious way as a rightly ordered love for one's nation. Mm. You could almost see it as a natural extension uh, of love for one's immediate neighbors, where we're saying, like, hey, we're, we're part of this community together that we call a nation, and I have a certain level of responsibility towards these neighbors. And Patriotism is, is basically essentially rightly stewarding that, rightly ordering that love for nation in an appropriate way. And I think you can um, be a patriot in godly ways. Mm -hmm. Nationalism is when that natural love for one's nation distorts into something that becomes idolatrous. Mm -hmm. It's when that natural love becomes an ultimate love a love that begins to command all other loves, a loyalty that begins to command all other loyalties. It's when your nation or your vision of a nation becomes that which is my supreme loyalty is of ultimate concern and everything else needs to essentially bow its knee towards that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's that feature that particularly interests me because anytime you're talking about the language of ultimate concern, we're talking about something that we're worshiping at that point. And it really is particularly that religious dimension of nationalism that I find so disturbing, but also fascinating. Because where a lot of discussion right now on nationalism, particularly Christian nationalism, kind of begins to circle around is, you know, Christianity having this overemphasized influence on our political systems in a given nation. And that, that's where the concern is. My concern is the exact inverse where we start seeing political allegiances and political loyalties actually influencing the way we express and understand our Christianity to where Christianity mm -hmm. becomes something that is instrumentalized, something that is used as a utility to advance a particular political vision. And, and that is something that I see is, is extremely dangerous. And so you'll, you'll see this in various nationalist movements is they almost all inescapably co-opt religious language, language that is not just meant to uh, evoke a sense of inspiration, but a sense of worship, mm -hmm. um, something that 
really is reaching into the religious affections of the heart and commanding that level of loyalty. And so I began to understand, you know, if, if we use that analysis, man, you start seeing so many themes in nationalism that look a lot like Christianity, but they are not Christianity. And so nationalism almost inescapably will use messianic categories, messianic uh, terminology to describe um, and, and kind of glorify certain political leaders, um, where you have these political leaders that, that take on these almost semi-divine qualities. So they're both kind of, kind of a deity, but also kind of man. Um, oftentimes they're seen as like bridging two different worlds together. Nationalism will oftentimes um, envision its own way of saving the nation. Um, it'll have a, a, an eschatology, a vision of the mm-hmm. future. But the key difference is, is that it is not the kingdom of God that is being advanced, but a particular vision of a kingdom of man. And that particular idea is the thing that I feel like needs to be brought to the forefront, that especially pastors um, and, and Christians need to care about. Um, because anytime that we use the language of the gospel to advance something that is not the gospel, um, we've made a, a grievous error. Yeah. Okay. I have so many questions following that really helpful introduction that you just gave us. Um, and I'm trying to take notes so that I don't forget my questions along the way. For my first thing that comes to mind that I want to ask you is how do we know when we've crossed a line from patriotism to nationalism? Yes. The, the litmus test that I've found in my conversations with people that, that usually evokes a level of conviction in response is I will ask people, and I've actually had pastoral conversations where I'm sitting down across the table with someone talking about this very issue. What do you more naturally and willingly and passionately share with your neighbor? Mm. Is it the good news of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, the, the beauty of his grace, the, the, the glory of who he is? Or is it your political opinions? Is it your fears wow. about where the nation is going and the perceived solution that you feel like um, needs to be proclaimed and advanced? And what I've seen happen so often is that whatever is the functional good news of our heart is the thing that we're very willing to share with our neighbors mm-hmm. and the people that we love. And so what I saw a lot of during 2020, um, on, on every part of the political spectrum, far left, far right, middle, moderate, um, was a a unique religious devotion and passion that was given towards political solutions. Um, and that was, and I'm not saying that politics doesn't matter. It just can't matter in an ultimate sense. Mm -hmm. And and that is something that is, uh, I think something that is a pastoral concern and and a Christian concern. Do you think there's something unique about this moment in history in the United States where there's a sort of uh, secularism and movement away from religious practice that has somehow made um, our our secular society more prone to this Uh, or, or even our churches? I mean, what's happening in this moment in America and in the church that's unique that is has sort of allowed for this? 
I think there's always been a, a temptation and even a storyline of, of Christian nationalism throughout American history, um, even going back to the colonial area before the establishment of the United States. And so it, it's all, always been there in a sense. But I do think that it is something that is occupying maybe the, the you know, the front of our minds a little bit more right now because, you know, things like January 6th happen and people are, you know, storming the Capitol and occupying the Capitol for like a, a few hours. And this most sustained invasion essentially of the United States Capitol um, since 1812. And as they're doing that, they're carrying some Jesus flags. They're, they're people that are, are having Bibles with them. Their prayers being offered on the Senate floor. I think that makes it uniquely visible. It's kind mm -hmm. of um, something that that comes to the forefront of our mind. And we're seeing like this is actually having a significant impact on on how people are engaging their participation in civil society. And and so I think that is unique. And, and I do think what you're saying there, Jen, is very insightful in the sense that nationalism is almost always a reactionary movement. It is something that is perceived as a response to an incoming threat. And, and so it is true that um, our, our society is becoming increasingly secular, even though um, religion is, is still very much a very uh, vital part of our, our society right now. And, and so whenever that, that narrative comes that um, there is this very nefarious um, kind of worldly force that is trying to basically push us back, um, that, that's a believable idea. That's a believable story. And in some sense, it's a very true story the the issue comes to what is the response to that it is the response primarily to say our hope and our best energy needs to be put into primarily political solutions and political activism um or is our response um to to robustly um see a new renewed value of, of what the local church is meant to be um mm -hmm. to be able to um, be well equipped um, to bear witness to the gospel um, with great boldness, but also great grace in our communities? Um, or is it to basically say, we're going to mobilize for these very, very um, uh, volatile political victories? And and I, I think that that is the thing that is, is why it's such a, a focused source of conversation right now is because people are seeing that almost on a daily basis, there's uh, different stories that can ultimately derive from a, a version of Christian nationalism that has created um, a, a different story or a different event or a different controversy. It was so interesting to me when January 6th happened. I mean, first and foremost, it was horrifying and surreal, um, perhaps not surreal to you because you had already been sort of stewing in these uh, ideas about nationalism. Um, but for me, it was, it was shocking what was really interesting and remains the case today is the very different perceptions of what actually happened. I feel like there's voices inside the church who are like, and that was not Christian nationalism. There was nothing, you know, nothing to see here. The church was not involved in any way and we bear no responsibility. And then you've got the equal and opposite voice that is like, Oh, that was hundred percent American evangelicals. And yeah. this is a huge problem amongst us. Yeah. How did you view January 6th and what's true? How, how is it possible that we're seeing the same day so differently inside the church? Yes. 
Well, on January 6th, I mean, there, there were two local senior pastors that were at the January 6th rally. Um, posting online, posting on Facebook, taking members local to your community, to local to my community, and, okay. and so, so it was a it was a locally felt reality. Um, uh, there was even one pastor that it took a selfie with the guy with the horned helmet, um, and then you know three hours later, that guy's in the Senate chamber, and, and so it, it did hit us in a very uniquely local way because there was local participation of the church that was somewhat visible, mm. and and I will say this early on. I even wrote something that became an op-ed for our local paper. There did seem to be locally this agreement that, in general, January 6th was a very bad thing that happened. Now, there were very few people pushing back against that. Um, I, I did have one of our, our former church members say, no, that was Antifa. Um, those weren't real um, supporters of the president. Those were um, basically members of the radical left that were um, trying to make um, President Trump look bad. And so even then, there was some, some doubt on exactly what happened. But I have absolutely noticed, and, and sociological data has shown, that there has been a change in opinions of, of more um, right-leaning um, evangelical Christians of almost beginning to justify that, that day as something that was not bad, that was a legitimate form of political discourse. And, and that is concerning. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that, that is concerning when we normalize things that should be absolutely unacceptable in a democratic society. And, and I, sh I think that just shows to us just the, the overwhelming power of confirmation bias. I mean, it mm -hmm. really is something that is seductive and enchanting and, and none of us are above it. Um, and so the answer is not just basically saying I need to be more confident in my facts. The, the answer is like we need to be very humble and, and realize that we live in, in an age where there's such a glut of information. And if you kind of go into the, the online world, you can basically find any data or any story or any narrative that is going to make you feel more convinced of what you already believe is true of being true. Yeah. And so it, it is something that um, is disheartening because, I mean, even then, like, I mean, when I originally wrote the manuscript for my book, most people thought that January 6th was a bad thing. And so I used it as my introduction. And by the time it was published, um, which was basically on the anniversary um, of uh, that, that moment, the, the Capitol riot, um, it was already something that was highly contested even in my own community in Amarillo. And, and so wow. it just, it shows you that um, our memories can even be distorted according to um, essentially our, our confirmation bias. And, and essentially what I argue in the book is that, um, the reason nationalism is, is such a force is because it really is reaching into um, our religious affections, and it's it's turning it that way. And, and one thing I should mention that I didn't get to mention a little bit earlier is that I really do think that the best way to understand Christian nationalism is as a form of religious syncretism. Mm -hmm. It's taking two fundamentally different religions and kind of fusing them together and, and making this this distorted thing. And that's what I'm seeing happen um, a lot right now, where people will even think that they're advancing the mission of God um, through this highly partisan political activism um, that is just so very different than how the, the mission of God has been understood historically. It happens with such a, a different disposition um, than who we are called to be in Christ and what it means to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, Whenever we're starting to build theological rationale um, of basically doing politics just the way that the world does, mm -hmm. 
without any substantial yeah. difference. Um, when we're basically saying, well, we're just going to play the identity politics card as well, and we're going mm-hmm. to use any means necessary to be able to do that, um, that, that is not uh, advancing the cause of Jesus. That is just advancing one political vision in Jesus's name. The thing that just makes it worse is, is that we're, we're taking the Lord's name in vain in doing that. Mm-hmm. That we're yeah. using his name as ammunition uh, to advance ultimately something that is is the kingdom of man. That is really powerful. I appreciate your question of, is what we're doing distinctly Christian? Are we operating in a distinctly Christ-like way? Or do we look and function just the same way the world looks and functions? What is unique about us as the body of Christ? And I feel, I feel like that's even a convicting question for myself is how does my life resemble um, that of Christ or, or do I look like my secular neighbors? That's really helpful. Um, here is a question, maybe a little bit out of left field, but I'm curious as to your thoughts. Do you think that Christian nationalism exists on both the left and the right? Like, is there a progressive liberal Christian nationalism, um, as much as uh, the sort of the more right conservative Christian nationalism? Do you see it on both sides or do you see it more prevalent on one or the other? What are your thoughts about that? One of the more interesting things about just looking at American history and, and tracing Christian nationalism, nationalism through American history is that there have actually been moments in American history where the most dominant form of Christian nationalism has been on the left. And so mm-hmm. when you're looking at kind of like the late 1800s, um, who was really pumping out Christian nationalism was the mainline denominations. It was, and it was typically associated with more what we would consider in retrospect progressive causes. Mm-hmm. And so absolutely. Um, and, and I do think that um, the left can absolutely try to instrumentalize Christian language um, and, and, and Christian affections um, for its political agenda. I think the difference is right now um, the Christian nationalism of the right is way more unified, and because it's way more unified, it's way more noxious. It's way more of a a, a negative impact on our political um, society right now. The thing about Christian nationalism on the left is I don't think it's unified at all, mm-hmm. and and I, and I could I think you could say that about leftist nationalism in America altogether is that. Um, how the left works right now is it, they can briefly coalesce to try to defeat a common enemy, but they have a really hard time seeing the common good together. Um, yeah. there, there's a lot of, of competitive victimhood that happens on the left right now where everybody's trying to outcheck one another and kind of um, basically um, use whatever identity that they're trying to advocate for as something that outchecks other people groups. And because of that, it's, it's really hard for the left to be able to coalesce together um, to perceive anything that's, that is envisioned as the common good. And, and yeah. that is an important point. And I'm really glad that you bring that up because something that I argue in the book is that nationalism is not something that is inherently tied to one political ideology. It's not something that is inherently conservative. It can be conservative, um, but nationalism, again, is, is something that is best seen almost as a religious shell that oftentimes will encase and then promote another political ideology like socialism, like conservatism, like something else. And, and mm. so you have seen different versions of nationalism appear throughout different nations and throughout different history, uh, th- historical moments, I should say. And it, it is, it's important to be able to understand that it's not something that is inherently on the right side of the political spectrum. 
And yeah. so Adolf Hitler was a nationalist. So was Joseph Stalin. So mm-hmm. was Joseph McCarthy. Um, mm-hmm. Radical different political ideologies. Yeah, that's really helpful. I, and I and my observations are similar to yours. I feel like we see it on the progressive left as well. But the right is much more coalesced right now. The right's um, definitely committed to one another and to the cause and has garnered a lot of power and attention um, in our nation. And as we talked even before we started recording, we feel it in our own churches and in our own communities. That's where we've really faced the biggest burden or the most pain or um, even division in the body of Christ is, is those who are pursuing a vision that is further to the right than where we have been in the past. Um, well, let me ask you this as a pastor and a follower of Jesus, then how does your faith inform your politics? You, you said earlier that you feel like you see politics informing faith, not the other way around, but you know, I wonder, should we just keep them separate? Should our faith inform our politics? What is the, talk to us about that through a Christian lens, through a biblical lens, how faith and politics collide. I do believe that our, our Christian faith should influence our politics and that it should even set the tone and um, the values of our political engagement. I, I think that is um, something that we need to understand about the gospel is m- maybe this might be clarifying for some, it might not be for others. I do think that the gospel is political, but I really believe that the gospel is not partisan. What I mean by that is that the declaration that Jesus is king is going to be a challenge to Caesar on the left and Caesar on the right. It is going to challenge blue Caesar and red Caesar. It Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. Um, What we have to be able to understand is that as citizens, there is a responsibility we have. We actually have a responsibility in America um, to be able to steward this precious gift as participants in a democratic society to pursue the common good. And so in some sense, when our society is um, promoting evil or injustice, um, there is a level of responsibility that we have for that. And so I think that we should be um, actively engaged in that. The distinction comes in when is when we understand the, the level of importance and the level of our affections that our politics deserve and merit. So politics can be a good thing. Um, politics can be even a necessary thing but it can never be an ultimate thing because politics can't save you. Mm. Uh, only, only Jesus can save us. And, and so we have to be able to ha- set politics um, within the, the order of our affections in our heart to where it's always subordinate to Jesus. And, and so mm. the, the issue of discernment that I think you brought forward is, um, it is it is right and true for our faith to be able to inform our politics. But when our politics and our political allegiances start twisting and distorting our faith to where we maximize some things and we minimize other things and, and emphasize certain things to the exclusion of others that are, are things that we're called to believe as Christians, that's when I believe that um, our Christianity is being not a source of, of values that informs our political engagement. It is instead becoming an instrument in the hands of Um, our our politics and what our political agendas might be. Yeah. I like what you said that our faith is, is informs politics, but it's not partisan. It's political, but not partisan. That's helpful. And just, it reminds me of what you said earlier. What is our functional good news? What is it that we are depending on? What is it that we exalt? What is that we want to share with our neighbors? What are we looking to, what are we living for? That's really helpful. And I think that contributes to then, you know, the unity of the body, that there can be a diversity of political opinions inside the body because we are unified by that, which is much bigger. And that is the gospel 
and the grace and mercy and love of Jesus. Well, David, I want to ask you one last question. What one parting exhortation do you want to leave with the church? I mean, you've obviously been studying this for a long time. You um, have studied it from an academic perspective, but also as a pastor who has a heart for the people of your own flock and a heart for Christians all over the nation. So as someone who is just, who knows a lot about this and is entrenched in these ideas, give us um, just some wisdom. What can we do after hearing this episode? How do we move forward in a way that honors the Lord? So I think of Isaiah and and his moment that he lived in as as a prophet uh, of Judah. Um, He essentially lived at the last golden age uh, of the kingdom of Judah. Uh, Assyria was on the rise and getting ready to invade. Um, In Isaiah's lifetime, he would witness the fall of the northern kingdom. Israel would go away, never to come back again. And there's this sense of fear and anxiety that is just absolutely uh, saturating the moment that he lives in. And he he goes into the temple uh, as King Uzziah has died, and he sees a vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And, And the Lord gives him a, a mission um, to declare a gospel um, that he even tells him at the very beginning it, it is going to be rejected by many. I think that we live in, in a similar cultural moment where it, it seems like, at least in the nation of the United States, that we very well might be past our, our golden age moment. And it seems like there's a lot of threats that are on the horizon. And in our age, just like in Isaiah's days. There's a lot of versions of the kingdom of men vying for our hopes, vying for our loyalty, vying for our affection. Already at that moment in in Isaiah's lifetime, um, there was the temptation to put all of our hope in Egypt, to put all of our hope in Babylon, um, to put all of our hope in some kingdom of this world so that that kingdom could help us um, be the nation that we want to be. And I think in that moment, we, we have to be a people. The, the people that, that really believe that Jesus is Lord must be a people that when the kingdoms of this world are, are vying for our hope, to put all of our hope in, in a vision of the Lord who is high and lifted up. To say that his kingdom and, and his glory are our ultimate hope. Um, they, they are where all things will be made new yet again. And because it is easy to put the hopes that should be placed in new creation onto some version of the kingdom of man mm. at, at a functional level. And, and then secondly, the, the one thing that I would say to people is this conversation is a difficult one. It's an impassioned one. And I think it's very important to realize that in conversations where you're talking to someone that might be led astray by political extremism, Shame is a very terrible motivator. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of our political discourse is, is framed by shaming rather than trying to establish a place of intimacy and empathy and, and honor towards our neighbors that feel differently than us. And, and mm-hmm. so I think it is something that we, we need to be able to engage prayerfully, carefully, uh, with wisdom, and in such a way that honors the name of Jesus. Yeah. Those are some really good last words. I appreciate that so much. Where can people keep up with you and where can they find your book? So the easiest way to keep up with me is probably Twitter. Um, you can follow me at David A. Ritchie. Um, my last name is spelled R-I-T-C-H-I-E. Um, that's probably where I'm most active on, on social media. And 
I am not a very active person on social media. Uh, (laughs) I'm deeply engaged in my community and in pastoral ministry. And and so um, that's where most of my conversations are. But that is where I interact the most with people. And I've had the the most pleasure uh, of interacting with people of different um, viewpoints, um, especially just as people have reached out to me and messaged me privately um, about my book and trying to clarify things there. And so I've really enjoyed that. And I really do welcome feedback. Um, I really do want to to hear how people are responding to these ideas. Um, uh, secondly, too, you can um, always uh, listen to uh, our, our po- church's podcast, RedeemerChristianChurch.com is our church's website. And I really would love to be able to interact with people. Um, how you find my book is it is available on Amazon. Um, you can you can go on Amazon. It's uh, Why Did the Nations Rage? The Demonic Origin of Nationalism. And uh, feel free to read it. Feel free to leave a review. I, I really would love the feedback. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much, David. And thank you listeners for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. So we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.